You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't pass on the Savage Lovecast. Mr. Potato Head, Pepe Le Pew, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, I really don't want to talk about any of that. But if you hadn't heard and you're keeping score at home, Dr. Seuss canceled or six of his books with racist imagery yanked by the Seuss Foundation. Pepe Le Pew, problematic, consent issues. Mr. Potato Head, no longer a Mr. Just a Potato Head. Honestly, I don't want to get into any of these scandals in any greater depth because I do not care. I really do not care. I mean, I am, of course against racist imagery in children's books, and I've always preferred my skunks to be non-problematic where consent to sexual activity is concerned. And I never really thought potatoes had genders in the first place. Oh, fun fact about Mr. Potato Head. They didn't used to come with those plastic potatoes. It was just a set of ears and eyes and lips and hats with pointy little pins attached to the inside of them. The toy was invented in 1949, so the original pieces were probably made of lead. And the idea was kids would get a potato from mom in the kitchen and make a little person out of that potato and play with it and talk to it and bond with it. And then mom would skin that potato alive and feed it to the kid. So it would seem that everyone was fine with Mr. Potato Head normalizing cannibalism in the 1950s, but reinforcing gender roles in the 2020s, not going to fly. And like I said, I really don't care. Oh, and Harry and Meghan should probably say something. Sunday wasn't a good night for monarchists like me. Turns out the British royal family is every bit as toxic and racist as a person would expect that particular royal family to be. People are calling for an end to the monarchy. And come on, they don't have any political power and they aren't really allowed to do or say anything. They're just toys in the hands of a country. So maybe just replace them with potatoes with little lead crowns stuck in them. Andrew Cuomo, also in the news, he's got to go. But I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to talk about a thing that happened to me or to me and Prudence, a.k.a. Daniel Lavery over at Slate. The first question in my advice column, Savage Love This Week, the very first letter in my column, Also the first letter and first question in Dear Prudence's column last week. There's a letter from a woman who discovered that her husband of 30 plus years that she didn't really like having sex with much in the first place. They didn't have much of a sex life, if a sex life at all. And she assumed that he was fine with that and resigned to how little sex he was having. Turns out that guy, that husband, the husband of the letter writer, that woman was swapping sex messages with another woman, which the letter writer said she might have been all right with, but the other woman was his first cousin. Now, I didn't steal the letter from Prudy and Prudy didn't steal the letter from me. The letter writer, the LW in the trade, sent the same question to both of us. They probably sent it to more advice columnists, just only Prudy and I bit. And this is a thing that sometimes happens nowadays. Didn't used to happen. I don't want to date myself here, but when I first started writing my advice column for this decade or so, The letters came in the mail. So when you wrote into an advice columnist asking for advice, you had to write it out by hand. You had to get an envelope, get a stamp, walk it to the post office. Now, and that made it hard to send it to more than one advice columnist. You'd have to write the letter out by hand more than once, put it in more than one envelope, have more than one stamp. Now, of course, just copy and paste and you can email your question to every advice columnist. 
like I said, this is a thing that sometimes happens. Isn't the first time a letter appeared in Dear Prudence and Savage Love? The same letter once ran in Dear Abby and Savage Love. I don't remember what that question was about. It was years ago, but I'm guessing it wasn't about fisting. Probably a wedding question. Anyway, it's interesting to read my response and Prudy's response side by side. The letter writer was worried what her kids would think. I said, don't tell the kids. Prudy says, tell the kids. Prudy says, tell the whole family. I said, don't get a divorce. Why bother after 30 years? And you're not really that into sex anyway. And if he's going to sex with someone, maybe better he do that sexing with a person he'd never leave you for because he doesn't want to deal with the stigma and the scandal or freak out the kids. Prudy says, get a divorce and a shrink. I probably should have said, get a shrink too. The letter writer said she didn't have anyone to talk to about this. Anyone other than every advice columnist on the planet, it seems. And she does need to talk about it with someone, just not her kids. And she shouldn't get a divorce, not so close to the funeral home finish line, in my opinion. I think people are just generally too quick to recommend divorce, to push divorce on people. This wasn't an abusive relationship. These were some inappropriate or squicky text messages and sex messages with a cousin. And as squicky and incest adjacent as that seems, first cousin marriage is legal in most places and isn't regarded as incest under the law. So if he's going to sex with someone, why not her? Anyway, I don't want to get into the weeds. I just want to remind people that advice, just an opinion about what could or should be done, and the advice a person needs isn't always obvious, and advice columnists can read a letter read a question and come to very different conclusions about what could or should be done. The letter writer could tell her kids, I don't think she should. I think she should stay in the marriage. Prudy thinks she shouldn't. Maybe we'll get an update from the letter writer letting us know what she ultimately decides to do with our conflicting advice. I tossed all this up on Twitter and Carolyn Hacks weighed in. She writes an excellent advice column for the Washington Post. And Hacks like me and Prudy, didn't tell the letter writer what she could or should do. She asked the letter writer a question. The marriage isn't what you told yourself it was. Do you still want it as is? The rest is just the messenger. You know, I think Hacks wins this one. Sometimes the best advice isn't being told what you could or should do. Sometimes the best advice is being asked what you do or do not want. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. Also on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, Randy Rainbow is here. He's here for a little bit of micro, and he's here for a lot on the Magnum. The Magnum Savage Lovecast, you can subscribe to the Magnum at savagelovecast.com. More calls, more guests, and no ads at the Magnum. Just go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe. But Randy is here for both the micro and the Magnum which excites us. We talk about musical theater, politics, and satire after Trump. And Randy tries his hand, his very talented and lovely hands, at giving some sex advice. That's all on today's show. Yo, Dan, I have a success sex story that I'm super pumped to tell you about. Um, So me and my husband, we have the same nighttime routine. I put in my earbud, get a podcast going. We kiss goodnight and say I love you. So I put in my podcast and it was actually your last episode. I was finishing it up from earlier and we kissed and the kiss was a lot longer than usual and we never have sex at night, but something happened and we started doing it. And I was like super 
into what was going on, it didn't occur to me to turn off the podcast. So I was totally getting eaten out while listening to your voice. That is crazy. I've heard from some people, they think the sound of my voice is sexy. I don't get it. I don't think I have a particularly sexy voice. I think the thing is I talk about sex and maybe people make an association and then it sort of becomes a bank shot. Sexy voice. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing. We like to start each week's show with what works with a success story before we move on to everyone's problems. If you want to share your sex success story, send it in and your story, your success story could kick off the calls next week. Hi, I am a gay male and I am recently talking to a new guy who just dropped a bombshell on me that he wants to wait until marriage to have sex. I um, have never dealt with something like that and I was hoping I can get some advice on that. Oh, it was so much simpler when gay people didn't have the option of waiting for marriage. Now that we do have the option of waiting for marriage, I don't think many gay men avail themselves of that option. I don't think this is common and it's so uncommon as to become suspicious. Makes me wonder what your boyfriend is hiding from you or what sort of hangups he has. You don't mention if he's from a religious tradition, if he has that sap on his head. It's amazing that some people can be raised in a very conservative religious tradition that pounds into them that they're not supposed to have sex before marriage at the same time that faith tradition is pounding into them that it's a sin to be gay. And some people walk away from very few people, but one or two, I've actually heard this problem before, one or two gay men will walk away from that kind of upbringing, let go of you shouldn't be gay, gay is a sin, but cling to no sex before marriage or hangups about openness or non-normative gay desires. You'll meet gay guys who think it's only okay to be gay in the dark in the missionary position with just one guy forever. And you met one of those guys. Very, very rare. My advice when you meet one of those guys or girls, my advice when you meet anyone who wants to wait until marriage is to let them, let them wait until they marry someone else. Don't keep going out with this guy unless he can explain this to you in some satisfactory way, unless there's some rationale here that isn't my angry imaginary sky friends, which is the most likely explanation, or something else that he doesn't want to share with you. Maybe he can only get hard when there's a fresh turd in his mouth or something that he feels safer disclosing to you at a moment after a big wedding ceremony when leaving him would be a lot more complicated. Extricating yourself from the relationship would be a lot more difficult than it is now. My advice, of course, is to extricate yourself from this relationship now. It is a bad idea to marry someone, particularly someone who wants to be sexually exclusive, particularly someone who wants a monogamous relationship to marry that person without first determining whether or not you have a good sexual rapport, whether you're sexually compatible. Sexual compatibility is crucially important in a sexually exclusive relationship. That doesn't mean that if you guys aren't clicking at 100% the very first time you have sex, you can't get closer, you can't get there, you can't become more sexually compatible, that that's not something you can work on. It is. But if there is no spark, if there's no sexual compatibility, if you do not like 
how their spit tastes or their vaginal secretions taste or their ass tastes. Yeah, you probably shouldn't marry that person. If they're really bad at sex, you probably shouldn't marry that person if it's going to be a sexually exclusive monogamous relationship, which it's most likely what that person wants if they're waiting until marriage to have sex for the very first time, at least with you. So yeah, run. End this relationship. Tell him you can wait until marriage to have sex, but he's going to be getting married to and having sex with someone else. Hey, Dan. I have a question about approaching a family member who is in a relationship with someone who is, frankly, emotionally abusive. In the two months that they've been seeing each other, he has called her over and over again repeatedly and effing C-word multiple times. She's 40, single, very successful, you know, in her professional life, and I think is in a very vulnerable place. And I just don't know what to do. He has given her a credit card that is tied to his name and has told her all of these things, like he was going to move to Australia, but it isn't because of her, and got upset with her because she wouldn't have sex with him in the car in a Walmart parking lot. All of these things, I could go on, but you get the idea. It's not a good situation, and I don't want to spend time around this person. I don't want him around my family. Um, I have small children. So what is the best way to, you know, firmly address the seriousness of this relationship without risking, you know, ruining the relationship with my sister? So why, if your sister is a professional woman in her 40s, is this guy giving her a credit card that he controls? I I have no idea. Yeah. Huh. She makes excellent money on her own. My only bit of advice that you probably haven't heard already that I don't think I've given before in this exact same circumstance uh, is don't say you can do better. Say you're better off alone. Alone is better than being with an asshole. Uh-huh. And then you speak your piece. You risk the relationship if you have to. Define your boundaries. You don't want him around your kids. He's not coming to your house. You disapprove. Right. And, and then you shut your mouth and wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if yeah. There may be a period of estrangement, and that may be the price you have to pay to wake your sister up a year from now, two years from now. You should keep the lo- those lines of sure. communication open. Not cut her off, even if she's cut you off. Reach out to her every once in a while and wait it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I When I called you, I was sort of um, panicking because <laughs> I only knew some of that information from her. And then a friend told me some other things, a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of panicking about some of just kind of the whole picture with all of those pieces put together. And I since talked to her this morning and I said, you know, I didn't I didn't convey some of the things that I had learned from my friends. And I just said, you know, I have your back. I see these red flags. I'm very concerned. I, you know, you can be honest with me about what's going on. And I, you know, opened the door for her to tell me more things, which she didn't, and just kind of left it at that for the time being. I know how frustrating that is. I've dealt with that in my own family, talking people. Sure. Trying, attempting to talk people into ending relationships that absolutely have to end. Sometimes for life and death reasons have to end. And it's incredibly draining emotionally to have those sorts of conversations and not see immediate change. Yeah, sure. I do know from the years I've been doing this and hearing back from people that having that conversation, even if it's setting a bomb off 
It feels like setting a bomb off, even if you feel like you've destroyed your relationship, that it's often setting that bomb off and destroying for the moment the relationship that the person you had that conversation with will remember what you said. And if you make the slightest effort to make sure that they know they can reach out to you at any time and you're not going to, I told you so, when they want help and they want to get out, you will provide the help, you will help them get out and save the I told you so's for ever <laughs> never even though i'm kind of in the i told you so business yeah <laughs> yeah but but i but yeah, i understand the hesitancy sure. there like uh, often i'm in this position doing the show where i feel like i'm urging people to do things that the urging to do is simple but the actual doing of them is hard and it's a hard conversation to have and it's a hard risk to take yeah yeah Definitely. I don't know. It's it's hard because, you know, the the part of the picture that I know from a friend is not things that she told me. So it would be hard to betray the confidence of my friend. I don't want to betray anybody's trust here. Ask your friend. Yeah. Like if it's a life and death situation, if it's a situation where your sister's going to scramble her DNA with this guy or marry this guy, God forbid, and making the relationship much more complicated, making his debts, if he has any, her debts. If it's if the stakes are high to go to the friend and say, listen, I know what I know and I have to talk to her about it. She has to know how bad that I know how bad it is. And so I want your permission and your buy off to to betray this confidence and have this conversation. Sometimes even without that person's permission, you're going to have to betray that confidence and risk nuking that relationship too to save someone. Right. Totally. I'm not a hundred percent sure we're quite that the needle is quite that far down the road. It's just the start of something that is not that great, but I I totally see what you're saying there. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm catastrophizing. It's the Irish Catholic thing to do. So I'm relieved (laughs) to hear it's not as dire as uh, where I'm pitching my advice. That's a relief. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I just, you know, it's the beginning of a path that could totally go there. Uh, you know, certainly what I wouldn't choose for her myself, you know, only, only she's the one that can make that decision in terms of what her ultimate boundaries are. But the whole picture together scared me. We talk about informed choices, informed decisions, and the information that you disapprove, that you think he's bad for her, that you don't want him around your children, and that if she is with him, she can't be at your place with you. That's all information she needs as she makes a decision about whether she wants to be with him. She needs to know what she's giving up for him and know it before it gets more serious, maybe not after. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. Good luck. I, yeah. I hope it works out. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. I'll call you back and let you know. Yeah, Appreciate do. everything you do. And thanks for the call back. Yeah. You're welcome. Hey Dan, I'm a hetero male. I come really fast, like really fast. Like if I'm watching porn, it's like under 15 seconds sometimes. And that's normally not a problem when I'm having sex with a person, but uh, sometimes it can be because usually I'll jerk off before they arrive and then that's fine. And then, but if it's like too long, like if it's like a thing where I haven't met them yet, you know, then obviously there's a few hours of meeting. And if the sex happens, then there's been a lot of time since that initial ejaculation, which means my reset has happened. And now I come in 15 seconds again. I tried doing Kegel exercises uh, back a while ago. I tried doing those like three, four times a day. 
And I don't think it really helped in terms of my duration, like still watching porn. It was, you know, 15 seconds and with the girl, maybe a little bit longer if it was the first time. Um, do you have any tips for that? Or is it just kind of like from now on, I just got to hide in a bathroom somewhere, jerk off real quick before I had sex with someone in order to make sure I can last like a normal amount of time that isn't selfish. I recently addressed premature ejaculation, I think in the column, and I neglected to mention something and a bunch of readers jumped in to scold me for neglecting to mention this. And I don't know why I can't get it into my head to bring it up when discussing premature ejaculation. Because my standard advice has been to do what you are doing, to have a wank before you have sex so that you last longer that second time. So you put the sex in that sweet spot of your refractory period and that second orgasm, which is going to take longer to achieve. There is another route. There are drugs, SSRIs, typically prescribed as antidepressants. They have the side effect that we talk about all the time. Everybody knows about this side effect. I would hope everyone knows about this side effect by now, but I guess that's not the case considering how often I hear from people whose libidos have cratered or tanked and they don't know why. And then it turns out they're on antidepressants. And this widely known side effect of an antidepressant tanking your libido, they weren't aware of it before they went on antidepressants. And for some fucking reason, their doctor didn't bring it up. Well, the known side effect, talk about it all the time. Another known side effect, delaying orgasm in men and women. Not that many women seem to have problems with premature ejaculation, in large part because sex ain't over, opposite sex sex, when the woman comes, typically. And a woman is capable of having more and more orgasm, so not a problem. A problem, though, for guys, particularly guys who are sleeping with women who want to be Dicked long and hard, dicked down long and hard. And if you're coming really fast in 15 seconds, you're not going to be able to provide that service unless you use toys, tongue, forearms, other things at hand. But low-dose SSRIs, low-dose antidepressants are prescribed to some men to help them with premature ejaculation. And there are studies out there that show it is effective, not for all men, but for many. So you might want to give that a try. You might want to talk to your doctor about that. And if your doctor can't talk with you about antidepressants and about premature ejaculation and can't talk with you about antidepressants, if you're taking them for depression without also talking with you about the sexual side effects, you have the wrong doctor and you need to get a better doctor. But you call her, talk to your doctor, and hopefully they can talk with you about this and perhaps give low-dose antidepressants, low-dose SSRI course, a try and see if it helps. If it doesn't help, get off those drugs and do what you suggested you might do, which is when you're going to have sex after a date or after hanging out for a few hours, it only takes you 15 seconds to come. Excuse yourself to the bathroom, rub one out, and then ride your refractory period to a longer second orgasm when you're having sex with your partners. Hey, Dan. I am a queer man, mostly interested in other men, and I live in a pretty big city on the East Coast. And basically, I would really like a fuck buddy. So <laughs> I have, you know, relied on Tinder and Grinder over the years and in person connections as well to meet people. But lately, when I open up the apps, I just don't really see anyone I'm interested in or I can't find people I'm compatible with. And to just be kind of vague about it i guess i'm interested in like very dominant men perhaps more in like the kink scene which i have not even like dealt into and like i also don't even know where to start or where to find that community especially right now when you can't meet people in person so 
I know people joke about my city being full of bottoms, and that definitely might be true, but I know that there are men out there who will want to fuck me the way that I want to be fucked, but how do I find them? You know, if you're just looking for a dominant guy, someone who's aggressive in bed, is going to throw you around and control the fucking, just fuck guys. And then you'll find guys in that pile of guys you're fucking who fuck you in the way you want to be fucked. But if you're interested in the kink scene, if you're interested not just in dominant guys, but dominant guys into bondage or S&M or flogging or whatever else, the dom guys in the kink scene they're on recon. When the bars and the kink events come back, those same dom guys who go out to those bars and kink events, those dom guys who go out are also right now dom guys on recon and they will stay on recon because that's where most people who are kinky gay men find and meet each other. So get on recon. In the meantime, don't hesitate to hook up with guys that you're interested in that you meet on other, I mean, hesitate for now because of the pandemic, but once the pandemic is under control. Once enough people are vaccinated and the world opens back up, don't hesitate to meet up with guys that you're interested in and then see what happens. See if you click sexually. You might find the right dominant Tom. You might also find in that pile of guys some dominant bottoms. They're definitely a thing, as are sub tops. There are some guys who, well, as the t-shirt goes, bottom the shit out of you. So don't rule out guys who want you to fuck them if you sometimes enjoy anal sex because you want that dominant energy from your partner. You can get that dominant energy from bottoms. If you live in a city full of bottoms and there are no tops, yeah, well, you might have to take turns topping each other if you both want to receive anal intercourse, both want to be the receptive partner in anal intercourse. doesn't mean you can't also be dominated by your partner when you are fucking them. You can. does work. It is a thing. But again, kink scene recon.com. Dom guys, they're out there, stirred into the general population. You will find them on Grinder. You will find them in bars. You find them in clubs. You find them at work. You find them on Recon, particularly if you want the guys with gear and some expertise around kink. Those guys are on Recon. Hey, Dan. I'm a queer woman in my early 20s, and I have a question about financial domination. So I've been dating this guy for about a year. Everything's really wonderful. I think we have really amazing communication, a great connection, and a really loving, caring relationship. Over the past few months, he has brought up a few times that he's interested in me making him pay me for sex. It's not like particularly my fetish, but sounds like fun, super down. However, we both have a few hesitancies. I think we're mostly both worried that exchanging money for sex could affect other aspects of our sex life or our relationship. So I was just wondering if you have any tips or advice on how to incorporate fin-doming into a romantic relationship. This is going to sound like a little bit of circular logic, but you incorporate Findom into a romantic relationship by being romantic about it. Anything can be incorporated into a loving, romantic relationship. Findom is a kind of domination, financial domination. Uh, it's usually not incorporated into a romantic relationship. Neither is having needles shoved through the head of your penis. That's something men who are into that typically would see a professional dom for. It's really a varsity-level sex act that very few people are going to be into. And very few men are brave enough to – who are into that – brave enough to raise that subject with a romantic partner. Does not mean it cannot be incorporated into a romantic relationship. If this is something that turns your partner on and you're down or you enjoy it, then it's love. And love is love is love is love. So incorporating Findom into a romantic relationship is just like incorporating 
basically any other power play kind of dynamic or act into a romantic relationship. Knowing it comes from a place of affection and a desire to meet your partner's needs, even if in the moment it looks cruel or domineering, it's still a loving act. And if financial domination turns your partner on, if it turns him on to be forced to pay you for sex, well, then you've basically created a kind of, in your relationship, sex swear jar where every time you guys have sex, he has to pay in, he has to pay up. Maybe that's money you can do whatever you want with. Maybe that's money that at a certain point you splurge on something for the both of you, fancy meal out, or if he's paying you a lot, a swank vacation eventually. It's a symbolic exchange in a romantic relationship. It's a symbolic exchange of power. And it's possible it's rooted in his desire for some form of degradation, eroticizing his feelings of inadequacy that you wouldn't be sleeping with him but for the money. The caveat here, the thing I want to warn you about is you have to make sure that these desires of his to be degraded, to be controlled, to be dominated in this way are compartmentalized, that there's a firewall around his kinks and his attitude toward you, that these don't come bundled with resentment. If it turns him on to think you wouldn't be having sex with him if you weren't paying him, he has to be able to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. He has to get off on that feeling, get off on paying you, get off on hearing you even say that you wouldn't touch him if he wasn't paying you, and know that that's not true. Know that you actually have feelings for him. Knowing that this is a performance, knowing that this is role play. And however cruel it might seem, however degrading the dirty talk around it might be, at the bottom, at root, not the bottom, at the root, it comes from a place of sincere affection and romantic affection for him. But yeah, you can incorporate this into your romantic relationship. If people can incorporate shoving needles through the heads of penises into their romantic relationship, you can certainly incorporate some fin dom into a romantic relationship. Hi, Dan. I am a gay male on the East Coast, and I am in a long-term relationship. I've been with my husband for 10 years, married for five, and we've been open for the last two years or so. But I'm calling because I am having a lot of jealousy issues. We have a really hot, adventurous, fun sex life. And it's great when it's the two of us. It's great with a third. It's great with another couple. But I always get jealous when he hooks up with someone without me. And he has a very hot body and a very high appetite for sex. And he's very popular on the hookup apps. So he's quite active. And I just get jealous every time I hear that he's done something alone without me. I've asked him to tell me because I would rather know than not know. But I don't know. I just don't know how to overcome that. Any advice? The obvious answer is for your partner not to tell you when he hooks up solo with other guys. It makes you feel bad to know that he's hooked up solo with somebody else and he's allowed to hook up solo with other people and you're allowed to hook up solo with other people. But it makes you feel bad when you know that he has, maybe because he gets more play than you do and it just kind of salts a wound, then tell him not to tell you. But you want him to tell you. You want him to tell you when you've hooked up with other people. 
And that means one of two things. Either you enjoy these feelings, you enjoy being hurt. Doesn't sound like you do. Doesn't sound like there's a emotionally masochistic impulse here. You're not a cuckold. Or you're waging a long campaign to disincentivize him hooking up with other people without you by putting down this rule that he has to tell you when it happens and then having a big sad, not a meltdown, doesn't sound like you're having meltdowns, so doesn't sound like you're taking it out on him. I'm not suggesting you are. But if he knows that when he hooks up with somebody else and he tells you, his partner, the person he loves, his husband, that he hooked up with somebody else, which is one of the rules that allows for them to have an open relationship, maybe he's going to hesitate to hook up with other people or pass on hooking up with other people because he doesn't want to upset you. Or maybe it will incentivize him lying to you, lies of omission or even lies of commission and not telling you when he's hooked up with other people because A, he knows it hurts your feelings. B, there may be some resentment on his part that this is the rule. I have to tell you. And this is the reaction. You're upset. You're hurt. And obviously he's not married to you because he wants to hurt you. But you have an open relationship, open on both sides. Sometimes you have sex with other people together, but sometimes you both have sex on your own. So my suggestion would be to revisit this rule that he has to tell you or end that rule perhaps, suspend that rule, or make a new rule that he only tells you when you ask. And then you can be prepared. There'll be times that you might want to hear about it, times when you feel more secure about yourself, about your own body, about your own attractiveness. You feel affirmed and it would turn you on at that moment to hear about his solo adventures. But every time he has one, him just coming in and disclosing that, full disclosure, deposition time, I have to tell you, so I'm telling you, maybe then he's hitting you with this information sometimes when you're not emotionally in a good place to hear about his solo adventures. So get rid of that rule if it's making you happy or revise that rule so that he only tells you when you ask him rather than him having to tell you right away. There's also the option of ruling out solo play with others. That's also a conversation that you could have with your husband, but that would be a rule then that applied to both of you equally. Hey Dan, I'm a bi boy in my thirties living on the West coast. I started dating a couple uh, about a year ago. This was my first real poly relationship and the first real throuple I've been a part of. A few months ago, my boyfriend moved a couple hours away to start a business venture. The idea was for my girlfriend to go move with him out there in a year or two when he is settled. And then they asked me if I would also want to move out there. My relationship with my girlfriend is pretty strong and I moved in with her after my boyfriend moved out. My relationship with my boyfriend was pretty rocky and a couple of weeks ago, my boyfriend broke up with me. He told me he wanted to be friends still, and he didn't even want to necessarily take sex off the table. He knew we would still be a part of each other's lives because we were still dating our girlfriend. I'm not taking the breakup very well. The last several times we had group sex, my boyfriend would barely touch me and almost act like I wasn't there. It was driving me crazy, and I couldn't tell if it was all in my head. I'm really hurt by him, and honestly, I don't think I want to see him or really be a part of his life now. My girlfriend's wanting me just to transition to this new phase where we all just hang out, but we're not boyfriends. But the thought of us all hanging out and seeing him be affectionate with our girlfriend and hear them have sex in the other room and continue to deny and reject me sounds like I'm torturing myself. My girlfriend told me that she loves me and she's committed to me, but that when the time comes, she's going to go move in with her other partner, whether I go with her or not. So in a way, it feels like our relationship has an expiration date. 
unless I can get along with my ex and work with him and live with him. When I say it out loud, it sounds super fucked up. And I love my girlfriend and I don't want to leave her, but I have to hear my ex's name out of her mouth several times a day. They video chat every night and I've just been going on walks and I because I don't want to hear his voice. My girlfriend also told me when we were fighting that she blamed me for our breakup and she resents me. My instinct is to walk away or at least move out and maybe see if my girlfriend casually. I feel like I shouldn't have my life so intertwined with the lives of two other people who already have this life plan of theirs. I need my own life. I know it's a lot, Dan. Let's please help. I want to say there's a lot going on here, but it feels like there is a lot that has gone on here and not much more to do, not much more to get on with except ending this relationship and moving out of this apartment and getting away from these people. Not that they're terrible or toxic people. They were an established couple and still are looking for a third that they could plug in to their lives. And you look like you might be that third for a little while. You felt like you might be that third and you aren't, you can't live with them. You can't stand your girlfriend's, boyfriend, the person that she is committed to and was committed to before you came along and has made clear to you that she has remained committed to, that her future, the trajectory of their lives, that's the thing that they have determined together, the two of them, and that's going to happen with or without you. And so you've been offered in a conditional way an ongoing presence in their lives so long as you can give them what they want, which is be friends with this guy who rejected you and make that pivot to friendship instantly and quickly and tolerate things like having three ways where one person is avoiding the other person where I guess two people are circling one person like moons and never running, coming into contact. Yeah, that doesn't sound workable. And emotionally for you, it sounds miserable and unbearable. If you're going to be with this woman Going forward, her boyfriend's name is going to come out of her mouth frequently. Her boyfriend's dick is going to go into her mouth frequently. And you can't tolerate that. You can't stand her boyfriend. This, this isn't going to work. A poly relationship where you know it's V-shaped, where there's one person who's involved with two other people all living under the same roof, where those two people don't get along, can't stand each other, hmm, that does not work. And so – I think you're reluctant to end this relationship because you can still picture a future with this woman that you still love and still have feelings for that isn't going to happen. The imaginary future you could have with her doesn't have her boyfriend, her other boyfriend in it. And she has made it clear that he is not exiting her life. So it's the two of them together if you want to have her or not her. And having the two of them together is making you miserable. So move out as soon as you can. As soon as the pandemic allows, you're going to have to move out and this relationship. No rush to end this relationship. He's somewhere else. You're there now. These little contingencies, you know, playing music and your, your buds really loudly when she's talking with him or about him or going on those walks. You can do that for now. Break up with her. Go the fuck away. Maybe in a year or two, you'll circle back. You'll run into each other and you'll be in a different place. And your wounds, at the rejection you suffered at your ex-boyfriend's hands won't be so fresh that you can't 
appreciate the person he is in a different way, in a friendship way, and maybe get the gang back together. But that is highly unlikely. Far likelier circumstances, this relationship's going to end. You're going to need to get out of it. You're going to need to end it. And you will look back in a year or two's time from the relationship you're in then and remember this relationship fondly. Maybe you'll be in a healthier, happier, more loving poly relationship in the future. And what you learned in this one that didn't work gave you the emotional skills and tools you need to make the next one work. But that next one can't happen until you get out of this one. And a healthier version of this one, if you wind up back in this one, can't happen until you get out of this one. So get out of it. Joining me by phone, Randy Rainbow is the brilliant comedian, singer, and YouTuber whose parody musical comedy numbers basically got me through the last four years with my sanity intact. Hey, Randy, welcome back to the show. It's so good to be here. I love you. And thank you for saying that. I love you too. I've been a fan forever. This is actually your second time on the show. Believe it or not, your first time was in December of 2016 before Trump was sworn in. So I was your fan and your biggest fan before Stephen Sondheim and Patti LuPone and Barbara Streisand, who are all Randy Rainbow fans now, got on board. And I wanted to have you back just to answer some questions because why not? But first, I got to say, I really want to thank you because it's trivial as it may, you know, some people might want to dismiss your art and your work and your satire. It Sometimes really, they wish they would. It, it helped me. And I think it helped a lot of people get through it. And that was really driven home for me when I listened to the last song that you made at the end of the Trump administration, Seasons of Trump, to the tune of Seasons of Time from Rent. I hate Rent. I don't like that show. And your season clearly of because you said seasons of time and then seasons of love. I'm, oh, I'm about to leave this show. Love, whatever. I hate that <laughs> show. Why do I know the names of the songs? But it oh made God. me cry. Like wow, there was such a release of tension, but also this like looking back over the hell of the last four years, and again being reminded about how your humor helped put things in perspective and get us through like shitty moments. I just want to thank you for seasons of Trump and all of the other work that you've done over the last four years. That is so nice. I actually got a little choked up recording it as well. I think for a number of reasons, obviously there was, you know, first of all, you're going, but I, I, I sort of, you know, I, I was trying to be humorous in, in, in going back when, when the actual song, though you might not know it, is talking about like, you know, lovely things in life or just, you know, and this was going back over all the horrors of the last four years. So there's that, but it also, it felt like the real end of a chapter, you know, it was, it was heavier than I anticipated it being. And I was really happy to hear from not just yourself, but a lot of people that they got a little choked up by it. That's always a nice bonus. Is it all right if we listen to a little clip? Listen to me, please yeah. all day. <laughs> all right. Here's a little bit of, uh, Randy Rainbow's Seasons of Trump. Two million, a hundred, two thousand falsehoods he tweeted. Basically 14,976 times he didn't have a plan. 11,780 votes he said he needed. How do you measure four years with this orange garbage can? Spicers and Conway's and Sanders and Listening to you tick off the names of some of these people and, and knowing that they're in our rear view mirror and Kellyanne McKenna, however you say her name, isn't going to work again. 
you know, she might find get a show on OANN, but not the White House podium. Are you worried, as some people have suggested, that you're going to run out of material now that all these motherfuckers are behind us? Well, a have you have you been watching the news? Is that <laughs> is that a concern of yours really now? I I I am glad that first of all I I'm I had right out of the gate what's her name Marjorie Taylor Greene gave me a, a home run that you know I immediately put on my my seventies Barbara Garb and 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 hopefully you know showed people this is something that I have known because I've been doing this shtick. Uh, for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, it, it started long before Trump was in office and, and satire and parody existed and comedy did exist before he came along. He has been dominating that kind of arena because, you know, for obvious reasons. And it's just been the, the richest, the richest source. But there, there's always and, you know, now we're, we're still in a pandemic. There's still, mm-hmm. you know, democracy is collapsing. Unfortunately, there's plenty uh, of material. We got Ted Cruz. We got Josh Hawley. I have a list of 20 songs. My problem today is I don't know which one to do. So there you go. You're obviously a musical theater kid, a musical theater queen, a musical theater homo, like me. Which is so funny. I I was so surprised and thrilled because I'd been a fan of yours long before you knew who I was. And when I learned that you were such a theater queen, I was very excited. (laughs) Well, that's what I really think that it's so clearly evident from what you write uh, and and the the, the lyrics you write. Your artistry is just art. You know, it's parody and satire. It is art. That it comes from such a deep knowledge for, love of, respect for musical comedy, musical theater, the genre, the performers. And I would have, I don't know, coughed up a kidney if I got a tweet from Barbara Streisand or Patti LuPone saying that they were fans, Patti LuPone made a video with you. Patti LuPone and I have dinner together. We're oh. legit friends now. Oh I, I don't God. know what, Brandy. I don't know who life is. I know. I can't, you know, these, this is how this all started. I'm just a fanboy, And, uh, the, all of these people are the reason that I do what I do. That's there. There's, there's no two ways about it. So the fact that they are now reaching out and you know offering their encouragement is like it's it's very dreamy and it, it also shows that they all have a sense of humor about themselves they do most people do have a sense of humor it's great of course some people don't okay the the trump administration is behind us the trumps are not behind us they didn't all get you know put it under a container ship and dragged out into the Pacific and sunk. Unfortunately, so I tried gonna, to make that happen. But. <laughs> plenty of material going forward, but it does feel like we can relax a little bit, which is why I wanted to have you on to just take some calls, give some sex advice. Because why the hell not? You're in trouble now because I've been quarantined for a year, and I frankly forget where things go. Hi, Dan, 30-year-old gay man living in the Pacific Northwest. I wanted to hear your thoughts on expectations and age in the gay community. I feel like there's this idea that you're supposed to spend your 20s basically being a slut and exploring all your kinks, and once you hit 30, you're done, and if you miss that window, well, too bad, you're too late. I know in straight land, there are similar ideas around your 20s. Uh, Some background on me. I was raised in a religiously abusive household with a lot of expectations, a lot of shame, and a lot of judgment. I was supposed to finish school by 21. I finished at 26. Get married to a woman by 25. Well, surprise, I'm gay. And have my first kid by 30 and so on. 
I came out when I was 21. I lost my virginity at 26, and I didn't really start interacting with the gay community until I was 28. Most of my 20s were spent in therapy, undoing the extensive emotional and mental damage done to me by my family, my community, and my church, as well as finishing my degree and getting my dream job and becoming a fully functional adult away from my toxic family. Now that I've been free to start enjoying myself, I can't help feel like I've missed my window of opportunity. Most of the guys my age and even younger have had boyfriends, plenty of sexual experience, and can expound at length about their kinks. I'm still learning how to enjoy vanilla without shame and the basics of GGG. My lack of experience at my age makes me feel like I'm too late to the gay party to enjoy it and almost as though I don't belong. Before COVID in 2019, I was able to have some great experiences with some great guys and some not-so-great experiences with some not-so-great guys. And I was well on my way to living my best gay life. Then COVID happened, and with it came isolation and depression and my 30th birthday. I know the idea that you're expected to figure yourself out in your 20s is bullshit, along with that idea that 30 is the gay death. I fucked up with guys well past 30 who have no problems getting sex. But I still have this horrible feeling that, like with other areas of my life, I'm too late because it took me a little longer to get started. I'm still working hard at my therapy, and on top of that, I started sex therapy recently as well. I'm hoping it'll help me break down the wall of shame that's kept me from really enjoying sex and everything being gay has to offer. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Dan. Your podcast has given me a lot of perspective and a lot of hope. All right. The pandemic's been tough for everyone, isolating for everyone. After a snowstorm in New York City, you tweeted, listening to the snow getting plowed outside my window and so jealous, which I took to mean that you haven't been getting out much yourself either. I miss plowing the snow. It's <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes. I my mother out. listens to your podcast. So you uh, have to consider that. No, go I'm, for it. I laughed out um, loud when I read that tweet. That's so funny. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, it's 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 really there's not much going on over here, and that's that's I am alone. I am alone. So uh, I know there are many like me out there, but that is a, a you know an issue that I'm facing. And I too was having a, a a gay old time. I was out on the road with my live tour. I was going to different cities and and um, different states, and and I finally moved to Manhattan. So you know things were were cooking. I got my cute bachelorette pad here on the other side, and um, now you know it's just the shop is closed. It's really depressing. So it's not just the caller who's not getting in right now because of the the pandemic, but this idea that like you're dead at 30 if you're gay. First of all, I'll go first. I'm 56. I ain't dead. I get laid plenty. How old are you? If I may ask a lady's age. I don't like this podcast. (laughs) I am 39. You will stay here until I've been vaccinated and life returns because I don't feel it's fair to graduate to a new decade while you're quarantined. I don't think, I think we have to discuss this. Yeah. Like there should be no evictions. There should be no actual birthdays. No, no age. No, it's, I mean, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I'm 39. And that, that notion to me, I mean, that's absurd. I guess that's a, that's a myth or that's like a cute thing that people say in the gay community now I mean, I've found the total opposite. As have I. And it's almost this, you know, people say this in their 20s and then they turn 30 and each seemingly every gay man on their own has to realize, oh, that's not true. This thing that not only I heard, but I repeated and said and may have briefly believed. My sex life didn't really take off until I was after 30. Yeah, no question. 
What happened when you hit 40 asking for a friend? <laughs> you know, it just got better and better. If you continue to like evolve, you know, I've been married to my husband for 26 years, but it's an open relationship. We have other, we've had other boyfriends and we've continued to have other adventures. You know, some people get it in their heads that you turn 30 and it's over or you get married and it's over, which is why I've waged a long campaign against bachelor and bachelorette parties, because what they symbolize are fun stops now. Now that you're married, this is your last chance to have fun. You're going to get married. You think people would get would get the the hint with that by now? Like to me, I would I would realize that while throwing the bachelor party, like it would be depressing to me. Yeah, like it, for some That's people, the problem the, the dad walking the daughter down the aisle, like it's weighted with deeply sexist, problematic history. But like some people do it as a gesture at that, but they don't. They're not invested in that sexism. And they're not subject to it. And some people can have a bachelor bachelorette party where it's not, this is the end of fun. It's like, this is just more fun as I go into my fun marriage. But for a lot, a lot of people have it in their heads that marriage means fun stops. And it was my experience. You know, I met Terry when I was 30, I'm 56 now, that that was when the fun started. And I was a little lost in my 20s and, and didn't know my ass from a, or my hole from an ass in the ground. Yeah, and figured it out as I got older. So, caller, it's not going to stop. You get to have fun in your thirties. And you know, I mean, we must say that he did mention a lot of baggage that that I personally did not experience with the religious upbringing and all of that shame and and the marriage and the thing. So that, of course, I would think plays into it. I I've always felt very liberated to just you know I come from like a very liberal Jewish family who's always just been like, you know, go do, do what you're going to do, have fun, enjoy your life. Um, so I, I don't take that for granted. So, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I only feel more liberated as time goes on. And you have really good news for this caller. He actually didn't turn 30 in quarantine. There are no birthdays in quarantine. And you get to, that's exactly right. I have, I have, I am a member of Congress and I have just passed that bill. So you are 39 until this shit is over and caller, you are 29 until this shit is over. We might even go backwards. I'm still working out with Nancy Pelosi. We'll see. Hi, Dan. I have a really dumb question for the Savage Love Test. My parents live in the suburbs and across the street from them, someone has built a giant snow penis with little sticks for hair. Um, it's been up for like a week. It's not melting. And they don't know how to react. They are trying to think it's funny, but I could tell they feel kind of affronted. There are kids on the block. Should they be telling the neighbors to take it down? Should they be sneaking across the street and knocking it down? Or should they stop being so crude? Oh my God! There are kids on the block. The penis thing is out of the, the out of the bag. Now that the kids know about penises, oh my God! What are we going to do? This is this is a this is an actually a serious problem that she's called with and happens far too frequently. Um, not really. I don't under. I don't know, Dan. You take this one. I mean, <laughs> really? That that's it's it's funny. I hope. I think hopefully she was being humorous, but. If that's like a real substantial problem that's keeping her up at night, I'm, that's funny to me. People are freezing to death in their apartments in Texas right now when your parents are worried about a snow penis down the block because a child might see it. I guarantee you it was probably the kids on the block who built it. Exactly. And nowadays, I don't know. I can't imagine even having, first of all, children ever because that's just not my thing. But, uh, you know, with, 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 the, with the exposure to just anything and the internet and social media, I, I think a snow penis is probably, there is, you know, some, it's charming. There's a charm to it. It's almost like a Disney movie compared to what the fuck 
people are seeing these days. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it harkens back to traditional values, the values of the traditional Romans who put phalli, phalluses everywhere. And so maybe you should just tell your parents that these are traditional Traditional, traditional, traditional ancient Roman values on display. Right. <laughs> exactly. Good luck, caller. Hi, Dan. So I've been with my partner for a little over a year now, and the sex is amazing. But I used to really love blowjobs, and the sex is just too damn good. For whatever reason, I'm not able to enjoy blowjobs to completion anymore. Can you help me? He should let me blow him, then he'll... <laughs> Then he'll know what it's like to not enjoy a blowjob. <laughs> you don't know what you got till it's gone. As you age, sometimes some pleasures wane, some wax, some things kick in to, to higher gear. A lot of uh, men find that their nipples get wired as they get older and they enjoy nipple play and stim more as they age than when they were young. And it's sometimes something that worked for your dick when you were 18 uh, doesn't work quite so well for your dick when you're 35, 40. Then your dick needs a little more. You need to fire on all cylinders. So call her. You know, if the BJ isn't getting you all the way there, would the finger in the butt help get you the rest of the way there now? Would some nipple play help get you the rest of the way there now? That would be my advice. Yeah. Open it up. Um, yeah. Again, if my mother turned this part off. Oh, should I even say, I shouldn't say yes, this. I'm a two-time Emmy-nominated comedian. Um, I <laughs> Who gives blowjobs that are bad, apparently. Yeah, whatever. No Emmy, no Emmy nominations for the head. No Emmy. <laughs> That's probably, I didn't blow the right people in the business. Um, but I find that I am more orally fixated as I get older. I, I never even, th- I, that, I was always like, I never found pleasure in, in, in any, you know, in that kind of. In giving a blowjob? Yeah. Thank you. I find that's the major kind of development with me is I, I appreciate that end of things a little more. I don't know why. Why is that, Dan Savage? I, I don't is know. It like a control situation? It's a control thing? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I think, you know, some people really love giving head when they're young and then, like, age out of it. Uh, I think something about uh, the way our sexuality works and the way our erotic imaginations work is that there's this desire for variety not just in you know the the persons that we're with uh if that's allowed to but then sometimes this desire for you know erotic imagination kind of shifts gears and often things are still in the same theme and the same you know basic orientation but there are like gear shifts where like the anal that worked for you that was your go-to when you're 20 has been supplanted a bit by an interest in oral and that can be tied to a particular experience with a particular partner that opened that up to you or opened your mouth up to them and i think you just have to kind of go with it and be open to your sexuality unfolding, evolving, getting more complicated, more interesting. It's one of the compensations for getting older is that your sexuality isn't locked in place and you're on this ride. And sometimes the roller coaster gets more interesting the, the longer you're on it. Well, I'm just getting started. Point me to that snow penis. <laughs> I feel bad for all you guys who are locked up by yourselves right now. There's going to be so much pent up demand for your oral. What's going to happen? I'm worried about my behavior when this is, <laughs> when they, when they let me out of this loony bin. Uh, I think that it's going to be the the whoring twenties. I think there's going to be a, a worldwide come springa, and we're all going to be on it. Yeah, we got to pace ourselves, everybody. I'm I'm really like I have anxiety, and I'm telling my friends we have to pace ourselves because we're going to go out 
on the first night and it's going to be hell to pay. Moderation and all things, but including moderation, I think we're allowed a few immoderate evenings when this is over, but we're all going to want to engage in self-care. And maybe those of us who are a little older are lucky in this that we can't get smashed and drunk and fucked up every night because we're not going to bounce back like we did at 22 and be able to go out that next night and do it all again. If we have some crazy fucking night, we're going to need a week to recover before we go out and do it again. Right. Not that that ever stops me, but I'll try to remember that. (laughs) Can I ask you one last thing before we let you go? Of course. I really think that you should do a parody of tradition for sedition. You know what? You obviously saw that I was getting harassed to do. Uh, yes, I've done that song to the ground. Even the Jews, my fellow Jews, are calling and saying, "Enough." I was just teasing you. That's a, a deep, um, obviously, That's a deep, a Randy Rainbow deep cut. A Randy Rainbow uh, but deep I do cut. have a, I do have a new feature on my website that I am assuming you will be visiting daily. That is a song request board. So because I get message, they email my agents. They email my mother. Just go to that board and you can and 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 type your song request. And I, I, I look at them and I actually take some inspiration from those. You know, there's a lot of people out there uh, creating parodies and other people have done musical parodies before. The, the, the reason like the Stephen Sondheims and the Al Mankins have gravitated toward you and embraced you is because your skill is not just as a parodist, however you say that word, but as a lyricist, that yours is a, an enormous talent. And again, it's been such a balm. Your videos have been such a balm over the last four years. And I can't wait to see what you do next. And it kills me that every time you've brought your live show to Seattle, I have been out of town and I have. I know. Well, we're, we're hopefully going to kick off the next tour this fall. If all goes as planned, that's the plan anyway. So I will certainly be coming your way. And when I do, you will be in the front row and we will at last be uh, in each other's arms. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. Thank you so much, Randy. Thank you for coming on the show. I love you. Thank you. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm 34. I'm a bi cis woman living on the East Coast. And I have a question about consent and words. So recently, I've been thinking about an experience that I had with an ex that always bothered me because of a possible gray area. But I was never really sure what to call it or how to process it. So I was dating a cis guy and we were in an open relationship. However, every time I hooked up with someone else, he would get really angry over these unspoken rules that I was supposed to have known about without us even talking about. I wasn't supposed to hook up with anyone when he was out of town or anyone that he had ever met. But I learned about all these rules after I had broken them and after he was very angry with me. So I became really afraid of breaking them and of his anger. So I stopped giving him every detail. And one time I had had penetrative sex with someone else and he asked me about the hookup and I panicked and I told him I had just given them oral. So he was actually super nice about it when I told him that. And after we had talked a while and I felt safe, I decided to be honest and he took it in and he said it was okay. And that I didn't have to lie to him. And then we had sex and then he came inside of me. He had never done that before. We were super careful about pulling out always because I wasn't on birth control. And I was really shocked when he did this. So I asked him why he had done it. And he said, quote, I wanted to feel different from all the other guys. So I asked him to split the cost of plan B with me and we just never spoke of it again. But I'm starting to feel like 
it may have been a sexual assault, even though I consented to having sex with him. And I, I guess my question is, what can I call this? I just want to be able to process it and move on. There was a consent violation here and a very serious consent violation. Rape, of course, is the most serious consent violation, but not all consent violations are rape. And I think it trivializes rape to round up unpleasant sexual experiences that made you feel violated because indeed you were violated. He violated you. He violated your trust. This was someone you thought you could trust and he took advantage of that, your trust, when you were supremely vulnerable to do something incredibly shitty and selfish to you and your body. He violated you. It seems to me that that word violated is a, a really good word that encompasses and captures your experience. But if you need to apply some other label to what happened to you, what happened to you, passive language, if you need to apply some other label to what he did to you in that moment for selfish, shitty, toxic masculinity, insecure bullshit reasons, if you need a word that's stronger than violation to apply to that, to help you, to, to, to put a label on it, and a label that captures how enormously violated you feel and violated isn't that word and you want to describe it or need to describe it as a sexual assault and label it as a sexual assault, you can, of course, apply any label you wish to this experience. So whatever word you need, I think violation is a pretty good word. If I had had an experience like this. And I have had experiences like this. I'm <laughs> in my fifties and I've been sleeping with men since I was 16 years old. I have been violated in very similar ways. And that word has always worked for me. And so maybe I'm just projecting what works for me onto you and that's not fair. And so if the word violated doesn't work for you, you don't have to use it. You can use the term sexual assault. And there's a lesson in your call for others about negotiating an open relationship. You really got to lay down the rules. And if someone has strong feelings about you not sleeping with anybody that they know, you not sleeping with anybody you're ever going to see again, you not sleeping with anybody in your apartment or the bed that you also sleep with them in, or there being certain sex acts that are special to your relationship that you're not allowed to perform with other people, and they would get angry if you did any of those things. They have a responsibility to make those rules explicit, not stand there waiting for you to come home and share your experiences with them and then blow up at you because you couldn't read their fucking mind. And every once in a while, you know, a couple will negotiate opening a relationship. They will establish all the rules and there might be a rule that one of them forgot to throw out there or something that someone didn't realize would affect them emotionally in a significant way until after it happened. And then a new rule has to be negotiated and established. That can happen in good faith. But a pattern like this, where every time you came home and told him about something, he blew up at you, that's somebody who wants to blow up at you. You say at a certain point he told you, please don't lie to me because he wanted the truth. No, he wanted more and more opportunities to explode at you for doing open wrong because you couldn't read his mind. Yeah, I'm glad you're away from this guy. He'd already kind of revealed before this violation, before this sexual assault, he'd already revealed to you that he was not someone you were safe with by constructing this minefield that you were expected to navigate without any information or a map or even being told it was a minefield. 
So in a way, that moment when you guys had been having unprotected intercourse but using the pullout method and that was established and you'd consented to that, to sex without a condom with him, so long as he pulled out and didn't ejaculate inside you because you weren't on birth control, it is an effective form of birth control when done properly, when done right. Some people have a hard time doing that one right. And he violated you, violated your body, put you at risk of an unplanned pregnancy and made you feel – at that moment, even more unsafe than you'd already been made to feel. And my only, and I don't want to scold you. I don't want to tell you you did anything wrong. Wrong was done to you. But for others, the lesson in your experience that you shared today on the show is that someone who pulls the kind of bullshit in an ethically non-monogamous relationship, a relationship that both consented to open, the kind of bullshit your ex played when that pattern emerges, that's when you end that relationship. That's when you know this isn't someone you're safe with and that you can't trust. And the longer you stay with someone who's already shown you that you're not safe with them and you can't trust them, the larger the violations of trust, the violations of you and your body become over time. That's a ripcord you want to pull right away. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman living on the West Coast. I recently got engaged to my partner of about a year and a half. We were both married in the past. Though I wouldn't say we are friends with our exes, those relationships ended amicably and now are defined by a few text messages every six months or so, and we've retained mutual friends respectively. Before announcing our engagement on social media, we not only told our families and close friends, we also personally reached out to our exes so they wouldn't be blindsided by an Instagram or Facebook post. My ex-husband thanked me for letting him know and wished us all the best. My fiancé's ex-wife reacted differently. She was angry that he told her, offended that he felt she might care, and said she never wanted to hear from him again. My question is this, were we wrong to tell them personally? We've both been divorced a number of years. Is it presumptuous to assume that they would care? You did the right thing, and that bitch is crazy. It was, of course, the kind and considerate thing to do, to give a heads up to your exes that you're both still in touch with and have cordial relationships with or used to have cordial relationships with. You don't want them to be blindsided. You don't want someone to go up to either of them and say, oh, did you hear the news? I hear that Marsha is getting remarried. And then they have to process that news in real time in front of somebody that they may not want to have an honest reaction in front of. So yeah, you absolutely did the right thing as your ex-husband recognizes. Your fiance's ex-wife obviously feels different. She was angry and offended. She would have been angry and offended whatever you did. Give her a heads up. She's going to be pissed off about that. Find out from a mutual friend. She's going to be pissed off about that. Find out because she saw it on Instagram or saw your announcement on Facebook. You would have heard from her about how inconsiderate it was for you not to give her the heads up that she's mad at you for having given her. You couldn't have done anything right here. That doesn't mean you did anything wrong. You did the right thing. As I suspect you know. You know you did the right thing. Maybe your husband's ex-wife is a listener and you wanted her to hear me say that. And I said it. Hey, Dan. Recently came to the end of a five-year relationship uh, via phone call. I know we were apart during covid as they were away working, but um, I came to discover, despite the excuse of I need to find myself, uh, I need to have some time in between relationships, I jump from one to the next, that she had met someone working at the hospital with her. 
and they are now a thing. Um, however, I found that out on my own and I didn't, you know, mention that to her. And I just kind of smiled and let her continue to tell me this, these stories of how she's finding herself, how she needs some time alone to discover what she likes. And yeah, I'm not looking for closure. I'm just wondering, do I mention it? Does that do any good in the end? Or you just swallow that information and take it along your way that maybe they weren't the person you thought they were. Mention or swallow, mention or swallow. I would go ahead and mention it. When you aren't feeling so tense or lied to or keyed up, what she did here was throw out those little white lies that everybody throws out when they end a relationship. It's not you. It's me. I don't have time for a relationship right now. Your girlfriend, who's been away for most of this year, told you she needed some time to herself. She needed to find herself. Maybe she's just fudging the chronology. Maybe being away for the last year during COVID was when she found herself, when she had some time to find herself. And she's at the end of that process and entering into a new relationship and not at the beginning of it, but she didn't want to tell you about the other person because she didn't want to make you think she ran off looking for that person or whatever, whatever. She told you the little white lies that everybody tells each other when they're ending a relationship. And we tell people these lies when we're ending a relationship because we don't want to hurt their feelings any more than we are already hurting their feelings by ending the relationship. Give her a call or send her an email or a text when you're feeling chill and calm about this and just say, I heard through the grapevine that you're seeing someone else and that's fine and I don't have a problem with that. I would just like to know why you left that out when you said you needed some time. And it may be that she had the time and then met this person and had already decided to break up with you and hadn't told you promptly, which of course I think everyone who's made the decision to break up with someone should tell them as promptly as compassion and consideration allow. And maybe she waited longer than she should have and she could apologize to you for that. But don't be, you sound a little angry. Mention or swallow, mention or swallow. Go ahead and mention. Don't swallow this. But when you mention it, try to have an open mind. Try to have a little bit of openness in your heart for her because she didn't do anything grotesquely, baroquely wrong here at the end of this relationship. She did what a lot of people do, what you, you're a grown man, what you probably thinking back over the course of your life have also done when you ended relationships yourself. You told someone a face-saving little white lie, an ego-sparing little white lie, and it's their ego you're sparing in order to get out of the relationship without doing more damage than you're already doing by ending the relationship. So as soon as you're Anger is tempered by perhaps a little gratitude for having been told those little white face-saving ego-sparing lies. Then send her an email or a text or give her a call asking for a little clarity. And maybe that'll help you give yourself the closure that you're going to need here. A little clarity about what happened. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Xander tweets, when is the at fake Dan Savage produced CSI style drama just analyzing gender reveal party deaths coming out? I don't think I'd produce that, but I would totally watch the shit out of that. I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been a gender reveal party plot line worked into a crime show. A bomb kills someone at a gender reveal party and it looks like an accident at first. Turns out it was a setup. Dr. Julie tweets, 
Thanks for throwing the term genital reveal party into your gender reveal party rant there, Dan. As we should all know by now, gender is distinct from what tackle can be seen in a sonogram. And finally, Mojo Rising tweets, I find it comical that gender reveal parties have killed more people than weed. Yeah, turns out you can't pack too much weed into a bong at a regular party, but you can put too much gunpowder in a pipe bomb you're bringing to a gender reveal party. So maybe just pack and bring the bong instead. All right, we really appreciate everybody who posts your social media accounts about the show. Helps get the word out there. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer woman in my late 30s calling with a response to your answer to the woman who was seeing a woman who turned out to have a boyfriend. And I agree with a lot of what you said. But one thing that I feel like you left out that was kind of egregious is the fact that this woman, by sleeping with someone else that the caller didn't know about, particularly a man, um, you know, was was putting uh, the caller at risk for STDs or like for COVID or other things. And if she felt like she knew was safe because she knew her partner or whatever, it's it's totally unacceptable to make that choice for someone else, to not let someone else determine their own level of risk when it comes to that kind of situation. I just feel like this is something that often gets overlooked when we talk about cheating or polyamory not done totally ethically. And I just think it's worth mentioning that the the caller was dating a woman who made a choice that put her at risk without her knowledge or consent. And that's definitely something for her to consider and to maybe bring up with her as she has conversations and makes decisions about whether or not she wants to continue this relationship. Hello, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I just felt compelled to call after listening to episode 749. Uh, You had a DJ on who was talking about the cultural significance and importance, which I I don't want to downplay at all, uh, about the dicks uh, uh, being the really pretty important first uh, out queer punk band from Austin. But he made this very bizarre statement that – Punk rock started in, uh, in, in the United States in 1979. Well, uh, I don't know exactly what country he grew up in, but in the United States, punk rock was considered by some of us uh, in the scene to be kind of dead by 1979. And in fact, it really started in 1976, 77, and was fully flourishing, especially by 1978 when there were bands making records uh, independently and even on major labels. Uh, in in major cities. And so that was a very strange statement, uh, (laughs) to say the least. And, uh, you know, it was definitely considered gone by 1980 uh, in so many respects. So uh, not sure what records this DJ is playing, but uh, punk was definitely very alive in 1977. And I would know because I happened to play in a band that I'll leave nameless, uh, that was one of the first bands to play in the Mabuhai Gardens in 1977 uh, uh, in San Francisco. So uh, that was odd. Hi, this is a response to the caller who was talking about her friend's gender reveal party and her concerns about supporting it as a concept. And I just wanted to say that I think gender reveal parties are stupid, but I think that right now everybody should be nice to moms. Be nice to moms. It's really hard right now. I had a baby like six months before lockdown, 
and I've had several friends have them during the pandemic, and it is just heartbreaking and difficult, even for those of us who are really lucky and have jobs and are relatively stable to not be able to have our friends and family around like we pictured. And it's maybe that her friend is, even if she, you know, some part of her agrees that it's really stupid, she might be clinging to whatever little bit of normal baby having experience that she can, because it's, it's really hard. So everybody be nice to moms right now. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call 206-302-2064 or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Don't forget, Nancy and I are hosting another Savage Love live stream this Saturday with our special guest, my friend, writer, and pro-dom, Mistress Matisse. Send your burning BDSM questions in ahead of time to livestream at savagelovecast.com or come to the party and ask your question in the chat room. We're going to be answering as many of your questions as we can, so go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Randy Rainbow on Twitter at Randy Rainbow. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for tuning in.